First John and from chapter 3 beginning verse 11 and through to the section's conclusion at verse 24 reading from the ESV translation it says this love one another for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another we should not be like Cain who was of evil one and murdered his brother And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whoever, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us and we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive for him because we keep his commandments and what we do pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Thank you, Johnny. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, good morning, John. Someone's definitely awake, which is wonderful. Um, let me add my welcome to, to, to Derek's. My name's uh, Johnny. I'm the pastor, and along with Derek, um, one of the, the elders here at Hebron, it is great to be able to gather together this Sunday morning. And we're going to think, as Derek's mentioned, as, as trailed um, already, about First John chapter 3, uh, the back half of that chapter. Please do let me encourage you to keep that open in front of you over the next few minutes as we think about it together. It's, it's a tricky passage. I'm sure you'll agree in some ways that it seems quite complicated, perhaps, to get our, our minds around but it is wonderful and it's pastorally really really helpful so it'd be good if if you're tracking along with with what it is that John's saying and make sure that I'm cutting with the grain of that as I speak and before we do that though I'm just going to, to pray for us and to ask for God's help so let's pray together our God and Father we do thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have today and each week to meet together and to to read your word and to think on it And to help one another apply it to each other's lives. And by your Holy Spirit's help to do that. We ask now that the words of my mouth as I speak over the coming minutes. And that the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. To which family do you belong 
That was the, the question a friend of mine was once asked when he was a young boy, to which family do you belong? And for many of us, that might seem like a, a fairly innocuous question, a question we can answer fairly quickly without needing to give it much thought. But for my friend, well, the question of which family he belonged to was a cause of a great deal of uncertainty and a fair bit of anxiety, actually. You see, he'd been adopted not all that long before, and he'd previously lived in quite a complicated and a sad family environment, and he'd been adopted into, into a steady and a loving family environment. And so for, for my friend, especially in the early months and years after being adopted, well, working out which family he belonged to wasn't all that straightforward. And in fact, even thinking about that kind of question for too long caused him quite a great deal of anxiety. Because, you see, in his young mind, a mind that hadn't fully grasped the permanence of his new living arrangements, well, the stakes were really, really high. Do I belong to this loving, caring family environment permanently now? Is this my home? Or am I going to return to what was a dysfunctional family environment? A painful one. To which family do I really belong? And that sense of uncertainty about which family you belong to, and even this, the awareness of the stakes involved in how you answer that question, well, that was the same kind of ground on which John's first readers were standing when he wrote to them. Last Sunday morning, we read, if you were here, one of the most extraordinary ideas anywhere in the Bible and anywhere in the world. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. One of the, the radical, the extraordinary, and, and the utterly wonderful claims of the Christian faith is that people... Limited and fragile and deeply imperfect people can be called God's children. The children of the creator God who hung stars in space can be adopted into his family. Now that's an extraordinary piece of news. Only the question facing the Christians to whom John was writing and perhaps the question facing some of us this morning is, am I really in that family? And if you've been here on Sunday mornings over the past few weeks, we've seen exactly why it is that John's first readers were asking that question. John's writing to a church which in some ways was coming apart at the seams. A group of people from within the church had departed from the teaching they'd been given by the apostles, and they seemed to be claiming that they were God's children, not the people who'd remained with the apostles' teaching. And you might understand why that could be an unsettling, for the for the unsettling thing for the people who had remained. Have we got this right? I mean, they were our brothers and sisters, and, and they sound so persuasive and so confident in themselves. Are we the ones who are in God's family, or are they? Well, one of the big reasons John wrote this whole letter was to reassure to reassure those Christians who have stuck with the apostles' teaching about Jesus that they are 
children of God. They've been adopted into his family. All of the wonderful blessings and privileges of that are theirs. And that's been a big application point for us too. Because Christians can sometimes wonder whether we're really getting it right by sticking with the old, old story. Not least if we see other people around us moving on to something that perhaps seems a bit new and that might look more impressive. John's aim with this whole letter is to reassure wobbly hearts. And it's actually the big aim for our passage this morning too. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. Just look down at that verse with me. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. John's words this morning, well, they should effectively be like an arm around the shoulder of my friend from one of his newly adopted parents. The gentle reminder, you're in our family now. The paperwork's signed and sealed. You don't need to worry anymore. Reassurance to a wobbly heart. That's the goal. And what of the method? How is it that he reassures them? Well, he goes about it in several ways through the letter. But the method of reassurance this morning is to persuade his first readers and to persuade us that they bear the family likeness. That they belong to a family marked not by hatred for one another, but by love. Let's think about that under a bit more detail together under that first heading. Don't be surprised when brothers hate you, verses 11 to 15. Now, there are some uh, conflicts in the world, aren't there, that only make sense when you understand history. That can go for conflict on a, on a, a sort of worldwide geopolitical level, put very simply. It'd be difficult to understand fully the Second World War if you didn't know anything about the First World War that took place just over 20 years earlier. And it works for conflict on a more personal level too. It might be tricky for us to understand why two people don't really get on with one another very well until we were to find out that their families had been at loggerheads for, for, for generations perhaps. Some conflicts often make more sense when we know our history. And in verses 11 to 15 of First John 3, John gives the Christians he's writing to a history lesson. And he does that so they can make sense of the conflict that they're embroiled in today. Just notice that with me. Verse 12 of First John 3. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, if you don't know this story, Cain appears early on in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. Cain had a brother who was called Abel. And to cut the story short, Abel was a man who was faithful to God. Cain was a man who was not faithful to God. And ultimately, Cain, that unfaithful brother, ended up murdering Abel, the faithful one. That's a very much a potted version of the story. But it's just worth asking ourselves for a moment, why does John mention that story here? Because Cain seems to appear in First John out of nowhere, doesn't he? And uh, actually, he seems to be introduced by John as an illustration of how to love people. Did you see that? Verse 11, he says, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. If you were choosing an, an example of how to love each other, Cain is setting a pretty low bar, isn't he? Don't murder each other. It's, it's fairly attainable, I guess. And yet that's kind of the point. 
Verse 12, as we read on. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, John isn't actually giving us an example of of, of how we should love. He isn't holding Cain out as, as the example, the model of how Christians should love one another. He's asking his readers to look back into the history books to a time when one brother saw another brother doing the right thing. And when that brother who, who, who wasn't doing the right thing knew he wasn't doing the right thing, and so he hated his brother. Why does he want them to know that? Well, I think because that's exactly what was happening to them. Just think for a moment about how Cain and Abel map onto the, the situation John's first readers found themselves in. As Christians, they were doing the right thing by God. They'd stuck with him. They'd remained faithful to him. They'd stuck with the apostles teaching about who Jesus was and what he'd claimed to have come to do. And yet others from within their church, people they've previously seen as brothers, well, they hadn't stuck with Jesus. They'd done wrong by God. They'd walked away from him. And so what John is saying is that that pattern of Cain and Abel is a pattern they should expect to see themselves. They should expect to see people who look like brothers and yet who come to hate them for doing the right thing. Don't be surprised when that happens, says John. And I wonder if you can see how that might have been a help or an encouragement to the the, the weak-looking Christians, the wobbly-looking Christians who'd stuck with Jesus. Because you see, it's one thing that, that the world around them might be hostile to the Christian faith. They might well have expected that. But when, when hatred comes from someone who looks like another Christian, someone you used to think of as, as being a brother or a sister, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? And can I just say, it was ever thus. I was speaking to another pastor this week, and he described exactly this kind of experience. He didn't know that he was speaking into it, that we were doing a series in, in First John, but he described exactly this kind of experience. He led a church through a very, very difficult split a number of years ago. A split over over what the Bible teaches about human rebellion and sin against God. He and and others with him were sticking to what the apostles teach, what the Bible says about who Jesus is, about how he would have his people live. And, And others who were leaving wanted to shift the goalposts a bit. And among all the reasons the split was difficult, according to my friend, possibly the most difficult thing was that he and the others who were with him, well, they were hated. They were accused of, of all kinds of, of nasty and untrue things. They were treated appallingly. And it could have given them pause for thought. Are we getting this right? Well, to that pastor in the church who stayed with him, I think, John would say, listen, I know it's hard, but don't be surprised. Look at Cain and Abel. It's always been like that. Now, perhaps you can't identify with that experience at a a sort of corporate group level. And yet, if if you're a Christian, perhaps you've been a Christian for any length of time, again, you might have experienced something similar on a personal level. Maybe a a concrete example, again, from from real life might help to illustrate the point. There's a, a person whom I used to know relatively well. It was a keen Christian, led various youth groups when I was doing the same thing. And we sort of lost touch for a few years, and he then connected with me again through social media. 
transpires he now works for a large church organization in a different part of the world but it also transpires that he's he's changed his views on some fairly major issues he's now strongly against the apostles teaching particularly on issues of of ethics and morality and actually he sees part of his calling now as, as someone who's been shown the light to call out the backward group of christians he used to be a part of basically people like me and I'll be honest and say that can be a deeply unsettling thing. When someone whom you used to consider as a brother or a sister, a leader in the church even, is now cold or even hostile towards you for believing what they used to believe. It can make you wonder, am I getting this right? Or have they done the right thing by leaving? Am I really in God's family or are they? John says, if you've stuck with the apostles' teaching, if you're sticking with the Jesus of the Bible and looking to follow him, well, you have got it right. You're in his family. But that just like Abel, don't be surprised when brothers hate you for doing the right thing. That's our first point this morning. Now, I wonder if you've ever seen any TV documentaries about border cops, police who keep tabs on on who and what is being brought into a given country. Most episodes of those kinds of shows seem to follow a fairly similar sort of format. Someone's usually caught trying to smuggle some kind of exotic animal into another country, trying to to sneak a panda through security in their hand luggage. And, And very often someone's caught trying to make their way through security with a fake passport. And there are two ways, usually, that border cops spot a fake passport. They can spot it, firstly, because it obviously looks like a fake. It might have been badly manufactured, and the print stick hasn't quite dried around the edges yet. Or they might spot it by comparing it to the real thing. Because, you see, when you hold a fake up against a genuine passport, one that has all the right watermarks and all the right serial numbers... Well, it becomes fairly clear fairly quickly when a counterfeit is a counterfeit. Now, we've just been thinking about the fact that as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised if people who who perhaps used to look like Christians, but who've wandered away from the teaching of the Bible, they begin to hate you. But it isn't always that obvious when people hate you, is it? At least not if you're a grown-up. Children aren't especially good at hiding it if they hate someone. But grown-ups can do a fairly good job of pretending that they actually quite like you, that they're your friend. And actually, John says that for Christians, the problem is, is worse than that general difficulty. He says it isn't just that it can be hard to tell that people hate you. No, the people who really hate you might actually be claiming to love you. That's our second heading this morning. Don't be fooled by love in words only, verses 16 to 18. Now, at first glance, verses 16 to 18 sound very upbeat, don't they? Really stirring verses. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's a stirring verse. It sounds like quite a moving command, and John's going to unpack it more fully in chapter 4. But you'll notice that I've given this uh, this little unit in chapter 3, the heading, Don't Be Fooled, which uh, sounds a bit more negative. But I do think it's in keeping with the tone of what John's saying. And the reason for that is those first five words at the beginning of verse 16. By this we know love. John's about to hold up the genuine article 
He's holding up a real passport, if you like. This is what the real deal looks like. This is what real Christian love is. And the hallmark of the genuine article of real Christian love, verse 16, is that it's like Jesus. It's self-sacrificial, a laying down of our lives for our brothers and sisters. And you see, when compared to that, when viewed alongside the real deal, well, the counterfeit, it's quite obviously a counterfeit. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, the difference between counterfeit love and genuine love is that the counterfeit won't put their money where their mouth is. Might well say they love, but their actions suggest otherwise. And I suspect that was of particular help to John's first readers. I suspect that the, the, the response they were getting from those who'd left, well, it looks like love. We read last week that the leavers were trying to persuade those who'd remained to leave with them. And it isn't hard to imagine that those attempts were couched even in the language of love. Guys, we only want what's best for you, you can imagine them saying. And again, so it is today. The friend I told you about earlier, for example, who now works for a church institution, to my knowledge, not once has he told any other Christian that he hates them. Certainly hasn't told me that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He's tripping over himself to tell people that the reason he wants them to walk away from the apostles' teaching is that he loves them. He's all about love. He wants what's best for them. He doesn't want them to be standing on the wrong side of history. And it can give you pause, can't it? It can me anyway. Is he really looking out for me? Is he or she actually trying to do me some good? And if you're a Christian, perhaps you can think of similar situations in your own life. Of people who've, who've perhaps drifted from the teaching of the apostles, from what the Bible tells us about Jesus. And who've tried to convince you to do likewise, whether directly or implicitly. And they've done so because they really, really care for you. John's asking, do they really? Getting a Facebook message or an email perhaps to tell you that you're all wrong about the Christian faith. They're only getting in touch because they really love you and they're concerned for you. That can sound, it can feel quite persuasive. John would have us ask, are they committed to your good? Even at cost to themselves? Because whilst fake love is self-interested, well, genuine love is self-sacrificial. Verse 16, by this we know love that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Genuine love looks like Jesus. Now again, we're going to see that being laid out for us more positively in a couple of weeks' time in First John chapter 4. But this morning in chapter 3, John's overarching goal, I think, is still to reassure Love isn't quite so much a command in 1 John chapter 3 as it is an assurance. Don't be fooled by love in words only, says John. That's our second point this morning. Now, um, if you're a Christian this morning, I wonder how you feel after hearing all of that. Some of us might be feeling reassured. 
that even though people might have given you a hard time for it, you haven't gotten it wrong by sticking with Jesus. And if that's you, then that's great. But my guess is that for a lot of us, even if you can see the logic of what John's saying, well, this kind of thing can still leave you feeling a bit unsettled. And if perhaps not right now, then you might well feel unsettled when you bump into that old friend who's walked away from Christian things and, and wants to ask you whether you're really sure about whether you're doing the right thing or not. Well, John anticipates just that kind of situation. And he wants to make sure we know what to do with it. We see that under our final heading this morning. Don't listen to your heart. Reassure it with the truth, verses 19 to 24. Now think back for a moment to my adopted friend I mentioned a few minutes ago. And to his questions about which family he belonged to. One of the really sad aspects of his situation is that he really wanted to be in this new family. He knew how much better it was than what he'd had before. Only the problem was that sometimes, well, he felt that he didn't really belong there. Convinced himself that he hadn't really been adopted, that it couldn't possibly be a permanent arrangement. And in his heart, it was all too good to be true. And you can sort of imagine the internal monologue, can't you? You don't really belong here, in this new home, with this new family who love you and care for you. No, you belong back there where things were, were, were tricky. That's, that's, that's where you deserve to be. And in one sense, that's the kind of internal monologue John has in mind. Verse 20, he says, Whenever our heart condemns us. For the people to whom John's writing, they're being given a hard time, not just from other people, people who've left their church, but from their own hearts. And that so often can be the case, can't it? No one, I can say this pretty much categorically, no one talks to you as much as you do. And very often, no one will give you more of a hard time than you will. Now, in what way were John's first readers giving themselves a hard time? Well, they were convincing themselves, I think, that they might not really be God's children. Persuading them that they don't really belong in his family. And so John's encouragement to them and to you, if you find yourself in that kind of situation as a Christian, well, to be frank, it's to completely disregard the counsel our culture would give us. Our culture would tell us that the safest thing you can do is follow your heart. So much so that as I noted down that heading for this third point this morning, don't listen to your heart, reassure it with the truth. I almost felt as though I was cutting against the grain of my own mind. It felt quite an almost sacrosanct thing to say. But that's rubbish, says John. Because your heart can't always be trusted. John's encouragement is not to listen to your heart, but to give it a right good talking to. Chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now, there are a number of different ways you might reassure someone, aren't there? Someone, for example, going into hospital for surgery, really worried about what's going to happen. One kind of surgeon might reassure them in a sort of therapeutic way, might, might, might put a hand on their arm and, and tell them, I'm sure it'll all be fine. That's, that's one kind of reassurance. Another kind of surgeon might offer something a bit more concrete, though, might they? They, they, they might reassure the patient by telling them of the precise number of times they've performed that surgery their percentages of success in that kind of surgery, unless 
they're not very good at that kind of surgery, in which case they should probably keep their mouth shut in that situation. But that second kind of reassurance is different from the hand on the arm, isn't it? It's reassuring someone by persuading them of the truth, of the reality of their situation, the objective facts facing them. And that's the kind of reassurance John has in mind. He's addressing Christians whose heart is condemning them, whose heart has them in the dock. And as he does that, he doesn't offer them a gentle hand on the arm. There, there, I'm, I'm sure you're doing the right thing. He wants to persuade them of the truth. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Your heart might be leading the argument for the prosecution. John says, don't listen to it. Tell your heart instead to listen to God. And to listen to God saying two things in particular. Firstly, as he said so far, there are two families. There's Cain's family and there's Abel's family. And if you're being treated like Abel and you aren't treating other people like Cain, well, that's one mark that you may well be in God's family. So don't be unsettled by that. That's the first reassurance. And the second listen to God thing he would have us do is verse 23. This is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he's commanded us. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm aware that even as we've thought on the issue of of love this morning, and of Christians showing ourselves to be Christians by our love, some of us might feel even more wobbly than when we first arrived. Because the reality is that we don't love as we ought, do we? And so even though I've said a few times these verses are meant to reassure us, you might even now be feeling anything but reassured. Well, it is just worth being really clear. The standard of love that shows you to be a Christian, well, it's not perfection. We've already seen that, isn't it? Haven't we? The, the, The standard given was that of Cain. Don't hate your brother. And the reality is that a genuine Christian well, is honest about their imperfection before God, confesses that imperfection to God, believes, verse 23, in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, because there and there only we find forgiveness. There and there only are we adopted into his family. And those are the two big truths to be persuaded of this morning. The two families, Cain and Abel's, And of the one rescuer, Jesus Christ. Now what are we to do with all of that practically? Well listen, if you're someone here this morning who has trusted in Jesus, who has believed in his name, then whenever your heart is condemning you, persuading you that you might not really be in God's family, give it a right good talking to Reassure your heart, verse 19. Persuade yourself. Preach the truth to yourself. That's the weight of what John's saying. Take hold of that internal monologue that will otherwise take you down all sorts of different avenues and rabbit holes and convince it of the truth of who you are now. You're in God's family if you've trusted in his son, Jesus. Though our hearts would condemn us for all of our failings, of our unworthiness to be in his family, God in his grace is greater than our hearts. So listen to him. 
Now, if you're here this morning and, and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, we are so, so pleased that you're here. And it is just worth pausing at this moment to, to, to ask whether you have, have confidence about being in God's family, being a child of God. Our culture might well try and reassure you that you are, but it will reassure you by that first method of the surgeon reassuring you, putting an an, a hand on your arm. There, there, I'm sure you're okay. And yet the truth, the Bible's answer to that question on your behalf, is that you're not. The Bible tells us that, that all of us are not only not in his family, but that we're at war with him. And yet, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, one of the extraordinary truths of the Christian faith, the high points of trusting in Jesus, is that you needn't be at war with him. If you will trust in Jesus, the one who, verse 16, laid down his life for you, well, you can be in his family, welcomed in as a child of the Creator God. It is a wonderful offer. It is the most extraordinary news you will hear today. Let me implore you to consider it for yourself this morning. And let me close by again addressing the uncertain Christian feeling wobbly about whether you've got it right or not. Whether you're doing the right thing by sticking with the old, old story with the scriptures and what they tell us about Jesus. John wants to reassure you that even if you're hated by your brothers or those who you thought were brothers, well, if you're sticking with Jesus and his apostles' teaching, you're doing the right thing. And even though none of us love our brothers and sisters perfectly, and even though our hearts may well condemn us for that, that as we trust in the name of Jesus, well, we can have confidence that we are his children. So don't listen to your heart as it condemns you. Listen to him. Let's ask for his help to do that together now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that we can call you Father. Praise you for making people like us your children, not because of anything inherently wonderful or lovely in us, but because of your extraordinary kindness and goodness. And we praise you too that being part of your family gives us confidence when as Christians we might face hostility. Reassure us, Lord, that sticking with you is the safest place we can possibly be, and not only that, but the most wonderful place we can be. And for any here who don't yet know you, well, we do ask that you would please, by your Holy Spirit, enable them to take hold of the grace you offer for themselves, the goodness and the love that is greater than their hearts, the trust in the cross of the Lord Jesus, and so to be welcomed into your family. We ask all of these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.